Hello and welcome to The Mayor Zine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction, curated, presented, and once again solely narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. First up is a story of guilt, friendship, and redemption by Bram Stoker. One of the reasons I started The Mayor Zine was to do stuff like this, Bram Stoker is pretty much really only known for Dracula these days, but he did write more than just Dracula. While I'm not saying this story is as much a classic, I enjoy shining the spotlight on lesser-known works, letting us get to know classic writers a bit more in-depth. So let's see what else Mr. Stoker has for us. A Dream of Red Hands by Bram Stoker. The first opinion given to me regarding Jacob Settle was a simple descriptive statement. He's a down-in-the-mouth chap. But I found that it embodied the thoughts and ideas of all his fellow workmen. There was in the phrase a certain easy tolerance, an absence of positive feeling of any kind, rather than any complete opinion which marked pretty accurately the man's place in public esteem. Still, there was some dissimilarity between this and his appearance, which unconsciously set me thinking, and by degrees, as I saw more of the place and the workmen, I came to have a special interest in him. He was, I found, forever doing kindnesses, not involving money expenses beyond his humble means, but in the manifold ways of forethought and forbearance and self-repression, which are of the truer charities of life. Women and children trusted him implicitly, though, strangely enough, he rather shunned them, except when anyone was sick, and then he made his appearance to help, if he could, timidly and awkwardly. He led a very solitary life, keeping house by himself in a tiny cottage, or rather hut, of one room, far on the edge of the moorland. His existence seemed so sad and solitary that I wished to cheer it up, and for the purpose took the occasion when we had both been sitting up with a child, injured by me through accident, to offer to lend him books. He gladly accepted, and as we parted in the gray of the dawn, I felt that something of mutual confidence had been established between us. The books were always most carefully and punctually returned, and in time Jacob Settle and I became quite friends. Once or twice as I crossed the moorland on Sundays I looked in on him, but on such occasions he was shy and ill at ease, so that I felt diffident about calling to see him. He would never under any circumstances come into my own lodgings. One Sunday afternoon, I was coming back from a long walk beyond the moor, and as I passed Settle's cottage, stopped at the door to say how do you do to him. As the door was shut, I thought that he was out, and merely knocked for form's sake, or through habit, not expecting to get any answer. To my surprise, I heard a feeble voice from within, though what was said I could not hear. I entered at once, and found Jacob lying half-dressed upon his bed. He was as pale as death, and the sweat was simply rolling off his face. His hands were unconsciously gripping the bedclothes, as a drowning man holds on to whatever he may grasp. As I came in, he half arose, with a wild, hunted look in his eyes, which were wide open and staring, as though something of horror had come before him. But when he recognized me, he sank back on the couch with a smothered sob of relief and closed his eyes. I stood by him for a while, quite a minute or two, while he gasped. 
Then he opened his eyes and looked at me, but with such a despairing, woeful expression that as I am a living man, I would have rather seen that frozen look of horror. I sat down beside him and asked after his health. For a while he would not answer me, except to say that he was not ill. But then, after scrutinizing me closely, he half arose on his elbow and said, I thank you kindly, sir, but I'm simply telling you the truth. I am not ill, as men call it, though God knows whether there be not worse sicknesses than doctors know of. I'll tell you as you are so kind, but I trust that you won't even mention such a thing to a living soul, for it might work me more and greater woe. I am suffering from a bad dream. A bad dream, I said, hoping to cheer him. But dreams pass away with the light, even with waking. There I stopped, for before he spoke, I saw the answer in his desolate look round the little place. No, no, that's all well for people that live in comfort and with those they love around them. It is a thousand times worse for those who live alone and have to do so. What cheer is there for me, waking here in the silence of the night, with the wide moor around me full of voices and full of faces that make my waking a worse dream than my sleep? Ah, young sir, you have no past that can send its legions to people the darkness and the empty space, and I pray the good God that you may never have. As he spoke, there was such an almost irresistible gravity of conviction in his manner that I abandoned my remonstrance about his solitary life. I felt that I was in the presence of some secret influence which I could not fathom. To my relief, for I knew not what to say, he went on. Two nights past I have dreamed it. It was hard enough the first night, but I came through it. Last night the expectation was in itself almost worse than the dream. Until the dream came, and then it swept away every remembrance of lesser pain. I stayed awake till just before the dawn, and then it came again. And ever since I have been in such an agony as I am sure the dying feel, and with it all the dread of tonight. Before he had got to the end of the sentence, my mind was made up, and I felt that I could speak to him more cheerfully. Try and get to sleep early tonight, in fact, before the evening has passed away. The sleep will refresh you, and I promise you there will not be any bad dreams after tonight. He shook his head hopelessly, so I sat a little longer and then left him. When I got home, I made my arrangements for the night, for I had made up my mind to share Jacob Settle's lonely vigil in his cottage on the moor. I judged that if he got to sleep before sunset, he would wake well before midnight, and so, just as the bells of the city were striking eleven, I stood opposite his door armed with a bag, in which were my supper, an extra-large flask, a couple of candles, and a book. The moonlight was bright and flooded the whole moor till it was almost as light as day. But ever and anon black clouds drove across the sky and made a darkness which by comparison seemed almost tangible. I opened the door softly and entered without waking Jacob, who lay asleep with his white face upward. He was still and again bathed in sweat. I tried to imagine what visions were passing before those closed eyes which could bring with them the misery and woe which were stamped on the face. But fancy failed me, and I waited for the awakening. It came suddenly, and in a fashion which touched me to the quick, for the hollow groan that broke from the man's white lips as he half arose and sank back was manifestly the realization or completion of some train of thought which had gone before. If this be dreaming, said I to myself, then it must be based on some very terrible reality. 
What can have been that unhappy fact that he spoke of? While I thus spoke, he realized that I was with him. It struck me as strange that he had no period of that doubt as to whether dream or reality surrounded him, which commonly marks an expected environment of waking men. With a positive cry of joy, he seized my hand and held it in his two wet, trembling hands. As a frightened child clings on to someone whom it loves, I tried to soothe him. There, there, it is all right. I have come to stay with you tonight, and together we will try to fight this evil dream. He let go my hand suddenly and sank back on his bed and covered his eyes with his hands. Fight it? The evil dream? Ah, no, sir, no. No mortal power can fight that dream, for it comes from God and is burned in here. And he beat upon his forehead. Then he went on. It is the same dream, ever the same, and yet it grows in its power to torture me every time it comes. What is the dream? I asked thinking that the speaking of it might give him some relief. But he shrank away from me, and after a long pause said, No, I had better not tell it. It may not come again. There was manifestly something to conceal from me, something that lay behind the dream. So I answered, All right, I hope you have seen the last of it, but if it should come again, you will tell me, will you not? I ask, not out of curiosity, but because I think it may relieve you to speak. He answered with what I thought was almost an undue amount of solemnity. If it comes again, I shall tell you all. Then I tried to get his mind away from the subject to more mundane things, so I produced supper and made him share it with me, including the contents of the flask. After a little, he braced up, and when I lit my cigar, having given him another, we smoked a full hour and talked of many things. Little by little, the comfort of his body stole over his mind and I could see sleep laying her gentle hands on his eyelids. He felt it too, and told me that now he felt all right, and I might safely leave him. But I told him that, right or wrong, I was going to see in the daylight. So I lit my other candle and began to read as he fell asleep. By degrees I got interested in my book, so interested that presently I was startled by its dropping out of my hands. I looked and saw that Jacob was still asleep, and I was rejoiced to see that there was on his face a look of unwanted happiness, while his lips seemed to move with unspoken words. Then I turned to my work again, and again woke, but this time to feel chilled to my very marrow by hearing the voice from the bed beside me. Not with those red hands! Never! Never! On looking at him, I found that he was still asleep. He woke, however, in an instant, and did not seem surprised to see me. There was again that strange apathy as to his surroundings. Then I said, Settle, tell me your dream. You may speak freely, for I shall hold your confidence sacred. While we both live, I shall never mention what you may choose to tell me. He replied, I said I would. But I had better tell you first what goes before the dream, that you may understand. I was a schoolmaster when I was a very young man. It was only a parish school in a little village in the West Country. No need to mention any names. Better not. I was engaged to be married to a young girl whom I loved and almost reverenced. It was the old story. While we were waiting for the time when we could afford to set up house together, another man came along. He was nearly as young as I was, and handsome, and a gentleman, with all a gentleman's attractive ways for a woman of our class. 
He would go fishing, and she would meet him while I was at my work in school. I reasoned with her and implored her to give him up. I offered to get married at once and go away and begin the world in a strange country, but she would not listen to anything I could say, and I could see that she was infatuated with him. Then I took it on myself to meet the man and ask him to deal well with the girl, for I thought he might mean honestly by her, so that there might be no talk or chance of talk on the part of others. I went where I should meet him with none by, and we met. Here Jacob Settle had to pause, for something seemed to rise in his throat, and he almost gasped for breath. Then he went on. Sir, as God is above us, there was no selfish thought in my heart that day. I loved my pretty Mabel too well to be content with a part of her love, and I had thought of my own unhappiness too often not to have come to realize that whatever might come to her, my hope was gone. He was insolent to me. You, sir, who are a gentleman, cannot know, perhaps, how galling can be the insolence of one who is above you in station. But I bore with that. I implored him to deal well with the girl, for what might only be a pastime of an idle hour with him might be the breaking of her heart. For I never had a thought of her truth or that the worst of harm could come to her. It was only the unhappiness to her heart I feared. But when I asked him when he intended to marry her, his laughter galled me so that I lost my temper and told him that I would not stand by and see her life made unhappy. Then he grew angry too, and in his anger said such cruel things of her that then and there I swore he should not live to do her harm. God knows how it came about, for in such moments of passion it is hard to remember the steps from a word to a blow, but I found myself standing over his dead body with my hands crimson, with the blood that welled from his torn throat. We were alone, and he was a stranger, with none of his kin to seek for him. And murder does not always out, not all at once. His bones may be whitening still, for all I know, in the pool of the river where I left him. No one suspected his absence, or why it was, except my poor Mabel, and she dared not speak. But it was all in vain, for when I came back again after an absence of months, for I could not live in the place, I learned that her shame had come and that she had died in it. Hitherto I had been borne up by the thought that my ill deed had saved her future. But now, when I learned that I had been too late and that my poor love was smirched with that man's sin, I fled away with the sense of my useless guilt upon me more heavily than I could bear. Ah, sir... You that have not done such a sin don't know what it is to carry it with you. You may think that custom makes it easy to you, but it is not so. It grows and grows with every hour till it becomes intolerable, and with it growing, too, the feeling that you must forever stand outside heaven. You don't know what that means, and I pray God that you never may. Ordinary men, to whom all things are possible, don't often, if ever, think of heaven. It is a name and nothing more, and they are content to wait and let things be. But to those who are doomed to be shut out forever, you cannot think what it means. You cannot guess or measure the terrible, endless longing to see the gates opened and to be able to join the white figures within. And this brings me to my dream. It seemed that the portal was before me, with great gates of massive steel, with bars of the thickness of a mast, rising to the very clouds, and so close that between them was just a glimpse of a crystal grotto, 
on whose shining walls were figured many white-clad forms with faces radiant with joy. When I stood before the gate, my heart and my soul were so full of rapture and longing that I forgot. And there stood at the gate two mighty angels with sweeping wings and oh so stern of countenance. They held each in one hand a flaming sword, and in the other the latchet, which moved to and fro at their slightest touch. Nearer were figures all draped in black, with heads covered so that only the eyes were seen, and they handed to each who came white garments such as the angels wear. A low murmur came that told that all should put on their own robes, and without soil, or the angels would not pass them in, but would smite them down with the flaming swords. I was eager to don my own garment, and hurriedly threw it over me, and stepped swiftly to the gate. But it moved not, and the angels, loosing the latchet, pointed to my dress. I looked down and was aghast, for the whole robe was smeared with blood. My hands were red. They glittered with the blood that dripped from them as on that day by the river bank. And then the angels raised their flaming swords to smite me down, and the horror was complete. I awoke. Again and again and again that awful dream comes to me. I never learn from the experience. I never remember. But at the beginning, the hope is ever there to make the end more appalling and I know that the dream does not come out of the common darkness where dreams abide, but that it is sent from God as a punishment. Never, never shall I be able to pass the gate, for the soil on the angel garments must ever come from these bloody hands. I listened as in a spell as Jacob Settle spoke. There was something so far away in the tone of his voice, something so dreamy and mystic in the eyes that looked as if through me at some spirit beyond something so lofty in his very diction and in such marked contrast to his work-worn clothes and his poor surroundings that I wondered if the whole thing were not a dream. We were both silent for a long time. I kept looking at the man before me in growing wonderment. Now that his confession had been made, his soul, which had been crushed to the very earth, seemed to leap back again to uprightness with some resilient force. I suppose I ought to have been horrified with his story, but strange to say I was not. It certainly is not pleasant to be made the recipient of the confidence of a murderer, but this poor fellow seemed to have had not only so much provocation, but so much self-denying purpose in his deed of blood that I did not feel called upon to pass judgment upon him. My purpose was to comfort, so I spoke out with what calmness I could, for my heart was beating fast and heavily. You need not despair, Jacob Settle. God is very good, and his mercy is great. Live on and work on in the hope that some day you may feel that you have atoned for the past. Here I paused, for I could see that deep, natural sleep this time was creeping upon him. Go to sleep, I said. I shall watch with you here, and we shall have no more evil dreams tonight. He made an effort to pull himself together and answered, I don't know how to thank you for your goodness to me this night but I think you had best leave me now. I'll try and sleep this out. I feel a weight off my mind since I have told you all. If there's anything of the man left in me, I must try and fight out life alone. I'll go tonight as you wish it, I said, but take my advice and do not live in such a solitary way. 
Go among men and women, live among them, share their joys and sorrows, and it will help you to forget. This solitude will make you melancholy mad. I will, he answered, half unconsciously, for sleep was overmastering him. I turned to go and he looked after me. When I had touched the latch, I dropped it, and coming back to the bed, held out my hand. He grasped it with both his as he rose to a sitting posture, and I said my good night, trying to cheer him. Heart, man, heart! There is work in the world for you to do, Jacob Settle. You can wear those white robes yet and pass through that gate of steel. Then I left him. A week after, I had found his cottage deserted, and on asking at the works was told that he had gone north. No one exactly knew whither. Two years afterwards, I was staying for a few days with my friend Dr. Monroe in Glasgow. He was a busy man and could not spare much time for going about with me, so I spent my days in excursions to the Trossachs and Loch Catrine and down the Clyde. On the second last evening of my stay, I came back somewhat later than I had arranged, but found that my host was late too. The maid told me that he had been sent for to the hospital, a case of accident at the gasworks, and the dinner was postponed an hour. So, telling her I would stroll down to find her master and walk back with him, I went out. At the hospital, I found him washing his hands, preparatory to starting for home. Casually, I asked him what his case was. Oh, the usual thing. A rotten rope in men's lives of no account. Two men were working in a gasometer when the rope that held their scaffolding broke. It must have occurred just before the dinner hour, for no one noticed their absence till the men had returned. There was about seven feet of water in the gasometer, so they had a hard fight for it, poor fellows. However, one of them was alive, just alive, but we have had a hard job to pull him through. It seems that he owes his life to his mate, for I have never heard of greater heroism. They swam together while their strength lasted, but at the end they were so done up that even the lights above and the men slung with ropes coming down to help them could not keep them up. But one of them stood on the bottom and held up his comrade over his head, and those few breaths made all the difference between life and death. They were a shocking sight when they were taken out, for that water is like a purple dye with the gas and the tar. The man upstairs looked as if he had been washed in blood. Ugh. And the other? Oh, he's worse still. But he must have been a very noble fellow. That struggle under the water must have been fearful. One can see that by the way the blood has been drawn from the extremities. It makes the idea of the stigmata possible to look at him. Resolution like this could, you would think, do anything in the world. I, it might almost unbar the gates of heaven. Look here, old man. It is not a very pleasant sight, especially just before dinner. But you are a writer, and this is an odd case. Here is something you would not like to miss, for in all human probability you will never see anything like it again. While he was speaking, he had brought me into the mortuary of the hospital. On the bier lay a body covered with a white sheet, which was wrapped close round it. Looks like a chrysalis, don't it? I say, Jack, if there be anything in the old myth that a soul is typified by a butterfly, well, then the one that this chrysalis sent forth was a very noble specimen and took all the sunlight on its wings. See here. He uncovered the face. Horrible indeed it looked, as though stained with blood. But I knew him at once. Jacob Settle. My friend pulled the winding sheet further down. The hands were crossed on the purple breast as they had been reverently placed by some tender-hearted person. 
As I saw them, my heart throbbed with a great exultation, for the memory of his harrowing dream rushed across my mind. There was no stain now on those poor, brave hands, for they were blanched white as snow. And somehow, as I looked, I felt that the evil dream was all over. That noble soul had won away through the gate at last. The white robe had now no stain from the hands that had put it on. Last time on Phantoms of Reality, Captain Derek Mason gave his friend Charlie a startling revelation, and the two of them departed for a reality on top of our own. Phantoms of Reality by Ray Cummings Chapter 4 Hope, I came! I think I was first conscious of a queer calmness which had settled upon me, as though now I had withdrawn contact with the turmoil of our world. Something was gone, and in its place came a calmness. But that was a mere transition. It had passed in a moment. I stood trembling with eagerness, as I know Derek was trembling. A radiant effulgence of light was around us, clarifying, growing. There was ground beneath our feet and sky overhead. A rational landscape, strangely familiar. A physical world like my own, but it seemed with a new glory upon it. Nature, calmly serene. I had thought we were standing in daylight. I saw now it was bright starlight. An evening such as the evening we had just left in our own world. The starlight showed everything clearly. I could see a fair distance. We stood at the top of a slight rise. I saw gentle, slightly undulating country. A brook nearby wound through a grove of trees and lost itself. Suddenly, with a shock, I realized how familiar this was. We stood facing what in New York City we call West. The contour of this land was familiar enough for me to identify it. A mile or so ahead lay a river. It shimmered in its valley, with cliffs on its further side. Near at hand, the open country was dotted with trees and checkered with round patches of cultivated fields. And there were occasional habitations, low oval houses of green thatch. The faint flush of a recent sunset lay upon the landscape, mingled with the starlight. A road, a white ribbon in the starlight, wound over the countryside toward the river. Animals, strange of aspect, were slowly dragging carts. There were distant figures working in the fields. A city lay ahead of us, set along this nearer bank of the river. A city! It seemed a primitive village. All was primitive, as though here might be some lost Indian tribe of our early ages. The people were picturesque, the field workers garbed in vivid colors. The flat little carts, slow-moving, with broad-horned oxen. This quiet village, drowsing beside the calm flowing river, seemed all very normal. I could fancy that it was just after sundown of a quiet workday. There was a faint flush of pink upon everything, the glory of the sun just set. 
and as though to further my fancy, in the village by the river, like an angelus, a faint-toned bell was chiming. We stood for a moment gazing silently. I felt wholly normal. A warm, pleasant wind fanned my hot face. The sense of lightness was gone. This was normality to me. Derek murmured, Hope was to meet me here. And then we both saw her. She was coming towards us along the road, a slight girlish figure clothed in queerly vivid garments, a short jacket of blue cloth with wide flowing sleeves, knee-length pantaloons of red with tassels dangling from them, and a wide red sash about her waist. Pale golden hair was piled in a coil upon her head. She was coming towards us along the edge of the road from the direction of the city. She was only a few hundred feet from us when we first saw her, coming swiftly, furtively it seemed. A low pike fence bordered the road. She seemed to be shielding herself in the shadows beside it. We stood waiting in the starlight. The nearest figures in the field and on the road were too far away to notice us. The girl advanced. Her white arm went up in a gesture, and Derek answered. She left the road, crossing the field towards us. As she came closer, I saw how very beautiful she was. A girl of eighteen, perhaps, a fantastic little figure with her vivid garments. The starlight illumined her white face, anxious, apprehensive, but eager. Derek, he said, Hope, I came. I stood silently watching. Derek's arms went out, and the girl, with a little cry, came running forward and threw herself into them. Chapter 5 Intrigue Am I in time, Hope? Yes, but the festival is tonight. In an hour or two now. Oh, Derek, if the king holds this festival, the toilers will revolt. They won't stand it. Tonight? It mustn't be held tonight. It doesn't give me time. Time to plan. I stood listening to their vehement, half-whispered words. For a moment or two, absorbed, they ignored me. The king will make his choice tonight, Derek. He has announced it. Blanca or Sensua for his queen. And if he chooses the Crimson Sensua... She stammered. Then she went on. If he does, there will be bloodshed. The toilers are waiting just to learn his choice. Derek exclaimed. But tonight is too soon. I've got to plan. Hope, where does Robar stand in this? Strange intrigue. I pieced it together now from their words and from what presently they briefly told me. A festival was about to be held, an orgy of feasting and merrymaking, of music and dancing. And during it, this young King Leonto was to choose his queen. There were two possibilities. The Crimson Sensua, a profligate, debauched woman who as queen would further oppress the workers, and Blanca, a white beauty, risen from the toilers to be a favorite at the court. Hope was her handmaiden. If Blanca were chosen, the toilers would be appeased. She was one of them. She would lead this king from his profligate ways, would win from him justice for the workers. But Derek and Hope both knew that the pure and gentle Blanca would never be the king's choice. And tonight the toilers would definitely know it, and the smoldering revolt would burst into flame. And there was this Robar. Derek said, He is the king's henchman, Charlie. I stood here in the starlight, listening to them. This strange, primitive realm. There were no modern weapons here. We had brought none. 
The current used in our transition would have exploded the cartridges of a revolver. I had a dirk which Hope now gave me, and that was all. Primitive intrigue. I envisaged this chaotic nation with its toilers ignorant, striving to better themselves yet not knowing how, ready to shout for any leader who might with vainglorious words set himself up as a patriot. This Robar, perhaps, was planning to do just that. And so was Derek. He said, Hope, if you could persuade the king to postpone the festival, if Blanca would help persuade him, just until tomorrow night. I can try, Derek, but the festival is planned for an hour or two from now. Where is the king? In his palace, near the festival gardens. She gestured to the south. My mind went back to New York City. This hillock where we were standing in the starlight beside a tree, was in my world about 5th Avenue and 16th Street. The King's Palace, the Festival Gardens, stood down at the Battery, where the rivers met in the broad water of the harbor. Derek was saying, We haven't much time. Can you get us to the palace? Yes, I have a cart down there on the road. And the cloaks for Charlie and me? Yes. Good, said Derek. We'll go with you. It's a long chance he probably won't postpone it. If he does not, we'll be among the audience. And when he chooses the red sensua, she shuddered. Oh, Derek. And I thought I heard her whisper, Oh, Alexander. And I saw his finger go to his lips. His arm went around her. She huddled, small as a child, against his tall, muscular body. He said gently, Don't be afraid, little Hope. His face was grim. His eyes were gleaming. I saw him suddenly as an instinctive military adventurer, an anachronism in our modern New York City, born in a wrong age. But here, in this primitive realm, he was at home. I plucked at him. How can you, how can we dare plunge into this thing? Hidden with cloaks, yes, but you talk of leading these toilers. He cast hope away and confronted me. I can do it. You'll see, Charlie. He was very strangely smiling. You'll see, but I don't want to come into the open right away. Not tonight. But if we can only postpone this accursed festival. We had been talking perhaps five minutes. We were ready now to start away. Derek said, Whatever comes, Charlie, I want you to take care of Hope. Guard her for me, will you? I said, Yes, I will try to. Hope smiled as she held out her hand to me. I will not be afraid with Derek's friend. Her English was of different intonation from our own, but it was her native language, I could not doubt. I took her cold, slightly trembling hand. Thank you, Hope. Her eyes were misty with starlight. Tender eyes, but the tenderness was not for me. Yes, I repeated. You could depend on me, Derek. We left the hillock. A food-laden cart came along the road. The driver, a boy vivid in jacket and wide trousers of red and blue, bravely worn but tattered, ran alongside, guiding the oxen. When they had passed, we followed, and presently we came to the cloaks Hope had hidden. Derek and I donned them. They were long, crimson cloaks with hoods. Hope said, Many are gathering for the festival shrouded like that. You will not be noticed now. Further along the road, we reached a little eminence. I saw the river ahead of us, and a river behind us, and a few miles to the south an open spread of water where the rivers joined. Familiar contours, the Hudson River, the East River, and down at the end of the island, New York Harbor. 
Hope gestured that way. The king's palace is there. We were soon passing occasional houses, primitive thatched dwellings. I saw inside one. Workers were seated over their frugal evening meal. Always the same vivid garments, jaunty but tattered. We passed one old fellow in a field, working late in the starlight. A man bent with age, but still a tiller of the soil. Hope waved to him and he responded, but the look he gave us as we hurried by shrouded in our crimson cloaks was sullenly hostile. We came to an open cart. It stood by the roadside. An ox with shaggy coat and spreading horns was fastened to the fence. It was a small cart with small rollers like wheels. Seats were in it and a vivid canopy over it. We climbed in and rumbled away. And this starlit road in our own world was Broadway. We were presently passing close to the river's edge, this quiet, peaceful, starlit river. Why, in our world it was massed with docks. Great ocean liners, huge funneled with storied decks, lay here. Under this river, tunnels with endless passing vehicles, tubes with speeding trains crowded with people. The reality here was so different. Behind us, what seemed an upper city was strung along the river. Ahead of us also there were streets and houses, the city of the workers. A bell was tolling. Along all the roads now we could see the moving yellow spots of lights on the holiday carts headed for the festival, and there were spots of yellow torchlight from boats on the river. We soon were entering the city streets. Narrow dirt streets they were, with primitive shacks to the sides. Women came to the doorways to stare at our little cart, rumbling hastily past. I was conscious of my crimson cloak, and conscious of the sullen glances of hate which were flung at it from every side, here in this squalid, forlorn section where the workers lived. Along every street now the carts were passing, converging to the south. They were filled, most of them, with young men and girls, all in gaudy costumes. Some of them, like ourselves, were shrouded in crimson cloaks. The carts occasionally were piled with flowers. As one larger than us and moving faster rumbled by, a girl in it stood up and pelted me with blossoms. She wore a crimson robe, but it had fallen from her shoulders. I caught a glimpse of her face, framed in flowing dark hair, and of eyes with laughter in them, mocking me, alluring. We came at last to the end of the island. There seemed to be a thousand or more people arriving or here already. The tip of the island had an esplanade with a broad canopy behind it, Burning torches of wood gave flames of yellow, red, and blue fire. A throng of gay young people promenaded the walk, watching the arriving boats. And here, behind the walk at the water's edge, was a garden of trees and lawn, shrubs and beds of tall, vivid flowers. Nooks were here to shelter lovers. Pools of water glinted red and green with the reflected torchlight. In one of the pools I saw a group of girls bathing, sportive as dolphins. To one side at a little distance up the river, banked against the water, was a broad, low building, the palace of the king. About it were broad gardens with shrubs and flowers. The whole was surrounded by a high metal fence spiked on top. The main gate was near at hand. We left our cart. Close to the gate was a guard standing alert, a jaunty fellow in leather pantaloons and leather jacket, with a spiked helmet and in his hand a huge, sharp-pointed lance. The gardens of the palace, what we could see of them, seemed empty. None but the favored few might enter here. But as I climbed from the cart, I got the impression that just inside the fence a figure was lurking. 
It started away as we approached the gate. The guard had not seen it. The drab figure of a man in what seemed to be dripping garments, as though perhaps he had swum in from the water. And Derek saw him. He muttered, They are everywhere. Hope led us to the gate. The guard recognized her. At her imperious gesture, he stood aside. We passed within. I saw the palace now as a long-winged structure of timber and stone, with a high tower at the end of one wing. The building fronted the river, but here on the garden side there was a broad doorway up an incline, twenty feet up and over a small bridge, spanning what seemed a dry moat. Beyond it a small platform, then an oval archway, the main entrance to the building. Derek and I, shrouded in our crimson cloaks, with hoods covering us to the eyes, followed Hope into the palace. Chapter 6 The King's Henchman The long room was bathed in colored lights. There was an ornate tiled floor. Barbaric draperies of heavy fabric shrouded the archways and windows. It was a totally barbaric apartment. It might have been the audience chamber of some fabled eastern prince of our early ages, yet not quite that either. There was a primitive modernity here. I could not define it, could not tell why I felt this strangeness. Perhaps it was the aspect of the people. The room was crowded with men and gay laughing girls in fancy dress costumes. Half of them at least were shrouded in crimson cloaks, but most of the hoods were back. They moved about, laughing and talking, evidently waiting for the time to come for them to go to the festival. We pushed our way through them. Derek murmured, Keep your hood up, Charlie. A girl plucked at me. Handsome man, let me see. She thrust her painted lips up to mine as though daring me to kiss them. Hope shoved her away. Her parted cloak showed her white, beautiful body with the dark tresses of her hair shrouding it. Exotically lovely she was, with primitive, unrestrained passions, typical of the land in which she lived. This way, whispered Hope. Keep close together. Do not speak. We moved forward and stood quietly against the wall of the room, where great curtains hid us partly from view. Under a canopy, at a table on a raised platform near one end of the apartment, sat the youthful monarch. I saw him as a man of perhaps thirty. He was in holiday garb, robed in silken hose of red and white, a strangely fashioned doublet, and a close-fitting shirt, bareheaded with thick black hair long to the base of his neck. He sat at the table with a calm dignity, but he relaxed here in the presence of his favorite courtiers. He was evidently in a high good humor this night, giving directions for the staging of the spectacle, dispatching messengers. I stood gazing at him. A very kingly fellow, this. There was about him that strange mingled look of barbarism and modernity. Hope approached him and knelt. Derek and I could hear their voices, although the babble of the crowd went on. My little Hope, what is it? Stand up, child. She said, Your Highness, a message from Blanca. He laughed. Say no more, I know it already. She does not want this festival. The workers. What a world of sardonic contempt he put into that one word. The workers will be offended because we take pleasure tonight. Bah! But he was still laughing. Say no more, little Hope. Tell Blanca to dance and sing her best this night. I am making my choice. Did you know that? Hope was silent. He repeated, 
Did you know that? Yes, your highness, she murmured. I choose our queen tonight, child. Blanca or Sensua? He sighed. Both are very beautiful. Do you know which one I am going to choose? No, she said. Nor do I, little hope. Nor do I. He dismissed her. Go now. Don't bother me. She parted her lips as though to make another protest, but his eyes suddenly flashed. I would not have you annoy me again. Do you understand? She turned away, back toward where Derek and I were lurking. The chattering crowd in the room had paid no attention to Hope, but before she could reach us, a man detached himself from a nearby group and accosted her. A commanding figure he was, I think quite the largest man in the room, an inch or two taller than Derek at the least. He wore his red cloak with the hood thrown back upon his wide, heavy shoulders. A bullet head with close-clipped black hair. A man of about the king's age, he had a face of heavy features and flashing dark eyes. A scoundrel adventurer, this king's henchman. Hope said, What is it, Robar? You will join our party, little Hope? He laid a heavy hand on her white arm. His face was turned toward me. I could not miss the gleaming look in his eyes as he regarded her. No, she said. It seemed that he twitched at her, but she broke away from him. Anger crossed his face, but the desirous look in his eyes remained. You are very bold, Hope, to spurn me like this. He had lowered his voice as though fearful that the king might hear him. Let me alone, she said. She darted away from him, but before she joined us, she stood waiting until he turned away. No use, Hope whispered. There is nothing we can do here. You heard what the king said, and the festival has already begun. Derek stood a moment, lost in thought. He was gazing across the room to where Robar was standing with a group of girls. He said at last, Come on, Charlie, we'll watch this festival. This damn fool king will choose the Red Sensua. He shrugged. There will be chaos. We shoved our way from the room, went out of the main doorway, and hurried through the gardens of the palace. The red-cloaked figures were leaving the building now for the festival grounds. We waited for a group of them to pass so that we might walk alone. As we neared the gate, passing through the shadows of high-flowered shrubs, a vague feeling that we were being followed shot through me. In a moment, there was so much to see that I forgot it, but I held my hand on my dirk and moved closer to Hope. We reached the entrance to the canopy. A group of girls, red-cloaked, were just coming out. They rushed past us. They ran, discarding their cloaks. Their white bodies gleamed under the colored lights as they rushed to the pool and dove. We were just in time. Hope whispered, The king will be here any moment. Beneath the canopy was a broad arena of seats. A platform, like a stage, was at one end. It was brilliantly illuminated with colored torches held aloft by girls in flowing robes, each standing like a statue, with her light held high. The place was crowded. In the gloom of the darkened auditorium, we found seats off to one side, near the open edge of the canopy. We sat with hope between us. Derek whispered, Shakespeare might have staged a play in a fashion like this. A primitive theatrical performance. There was no curtain for interlude between what might have been the acts of a vaudeville. The torch girls, like pages, ranged themselves in a line across the front of the stage. They were standing there as we took our seats. The vivid glare of their torches concealed the stage behind them. There was a few moments' wait. Then, amid hushed silence, the king with his retinue came in. He sat in a canopied box off to one side. 
When he was seated, he raised his arm and the buzz of conversation in the audience began again. Presently, the page girls moved aside from the stage. The buzz of the audience was stilted. The performance, destined to end so soon in tragedy, now began. Chapter 7 The Crimson Murderess Hope murmured, The three-part music comes first. There will first be the spiritual. An orchestra was seated on the stage in a semicircle. It was composed of men and women musicians, and there seemed to be over a hundred of them. They sat in three groups. The center group was about to play. In a solemn hush, the leaderless choirs, with all its players garbed in white, began its first faint note. I craned to get a clear view of the stage. This white choir seemed almost all woodwind. There were tiny pipes and little series, such as Pan might have used, flutes and flagellettes, and round-bellied little instruments of clay like ocarinas, and pitch pipes, long and slender as a marsh reed. In a moment, I was lost in the music. It began softly, with single muted notes from a single instrument, echoed by the others, running about the choir like a will-o'-the-wisp. It was faint, as though very far away, made more sweet by distance. And then it swelled, came nearer. I had never heard such music as this. Primitive, it was not that, nor barbaric. Nothing like the music of our ancient world. Nor was it what I might conceive to be the music of our future. A thing apart, unworldly, ethereal. It swept me, carried me off. It was an exaltation of the spirit lifting me. It was triumphant now. It surged, but there was in its rhythm, the beat of its every instrument, nothing but the soul of purity. And then it shimmered into distance again, faint and exquisite music of a dream, crooning, pleading, the speech of whispering angels. It ceased. There was a storm of applause. I breathed again. Why, this is what music might be in our world, but was not. I thought of our blaring jazz. Hope said, now they play the physical music. Then Sensua will dance with Blanca. We will see then which one the king chooses. On the stage all the torches were extinguished, save those which were red. The arena was darker than before. The stage was bathed with a deep crimson. Music of the physical senses. It was, indeed, no more like the other choir than is the body to the spirit. There were stringed instruments playing now deep-toned singing zithers and instruments of rounded, swelling bodies like great viols with sensuous, throbbing voices. Music with a swift rhythm marked by the thump of hollow gourds. It rose with its voluptuous swell into a paean of abandonment, and upon the tide of it the crimson sensua flung herself upon the stage. She stood motionless for a moment that all might regard her. The crimson torchlight bathed her. Stained crimson the white flush of her limbs, her heavy shoulders, her full rounded throat. A woman in her late twenties, voluptuous of figure, with crimson veils half hiding, half revealing it. A face of coarse sensuous beauty, a face wholly evil, and it seemed to me wholly debauched. Dark eyes with beaded lashes, heavy lips painted scarlet, a pagan woman of the streets. One might have encountered such a woman swaggering in some ancient street of some ancient city, flaunting the finery given her by a rich and profligate eastern prince. 
She stood a moment with smoldering, passion-filled eyes, gazing from beneath her lowered lids. Her glance went to the king's canopy and flashed a look of confidence, of triumph. The king answered it with a smile. He leaned forward over his railing, watching her intently. With a surge of the music, she moved into her dance. Slowly she began, quite slowly, a posturing and swaying of hips like a notch girl. She made the rounds of the musicians, leering at them. She stood in the whirl of the music, almost ignoring it, stood at the front of the stage with a gaze of slumberous, insolent passion flung at the king. A knife was in her hand now. She held it aloft. The red torchlight caught its naked blade. With shuddering fancy, I seemed to see it dripping crimson. She frowned and struck it at a phantom lover. She backed away. She stooped and knelt. She knelt and seemed with her empty arms to be caressing a murdered lover's head. She kissed him, rained upon his dead lips her macabre kisses. And then she was up on her bare feet, again circling the stage. Her anklets clanked as she moved with the tread of a tigress. The musicians shrank from her waving blade. A girl in white veils was suddenly disclosed standing at the back of the stage. Derek whispered, Is that Blanca? Yes, whispered Hope. Blanca stood watching her rival. The crimson sensua passed her, took her suddenly by the wrist, drew her forward. For an instant I thought it might have been rehearsed. I saw Blanca as a slim, gentle girl in white with a white headdress, a dancer who could symbolize purity, now in the grip of red passion. An instant, and then horror struck us, and I could feel it surge over the audience, a gasp of horror. The frightened girl in white tried to escape. The musicians wavered and broke. I stared, stricken with freezing blood. Upon the stage, the knife went swiftly up. It came down, then up again. The red sensua stood gloating. The knife she waved aloft was truly dripping crimson now. With a choked, gasping scream, the white girl of the toilers crumpled and fell. She lay motionless at the feet of the crimson murderess. Next week, we add witches and demons to our phantoms, plus a very special announcement. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us... I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayorzine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor's Eve. Dan Adler, Tammy Bolkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome.
All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.